Our first scripture this morning comes from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Listen now for God's word to us. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. Our second reading comes from Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 60. Listen again for God's word to us. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coat at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and, cri and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he died. This is the word of the Lord. So whenever anyone has a baby, there's always a few details that people want to know immediately, right? Of course, the first question is boy or girl. Makes sense. And then usually the next question is, well, what's the baby's name? And you know, like when Sawyer was born, we actually took uh, almost a whole day to decide what his name would go, was going to be. 
and it drove people absolutely crazy, as you might imagine. And we were getting text messages every 10 minutes from friends and family asking, have we, have we had finally decided on a name? What are you going to name this kid? Just make up your mind. And I'm sure Mary's sister is going through a very similar thing right now. So trust me when I say, people want to know the baby's name. And then, of course, there's details about, you know, weight, you know, how big was the baby, how long was the baby, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, finally, there's, there's that game people like to play of trying to decide uh, which parent the baby looks more like, right? Who does the baby favor? Wh- which one of the parents? And this is the most fun because, uh, for some kids, this game never completely ends, right? I mean, even as they grow up and get bigger, people continue to ask, well, you know, I, th- I think you look more like your mom. No, I think I see more of your, your dad in you. And it's funny because at, at first, it's, it's pretty hard to tell with a newborn, right? They don't, I mean, they don't, they barely look like a human. You know, their, their faces are all kind of smushed from the, the journey that they've just been on. Uh, their eyes are barely open, if at all. You know, and then, like I said, in some families, like ours, for instance, it's, it's kind of an ongoing debate about who the kids look more like. Like, it's never a completely settled affair. Mary will pull out, maybe, maybe not once a week, but pretty often, she'll, she'll come across a baby picture of herself, and she'll show it to me, say, look, see, that's a Maya face right there, okay? I, that child looks like me, I promise you. I say, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, whatever you say, dear, that's fine. And in the South, we have uh, an expression for that, right? Spitting image, right? He's a spitting image of his daddy. Or she is a spitting image of her mama. Now, no one knows for sure where this particular colloquialism came from or how it developed, but there are quite a few theories about it. A quick Google search will take you to these various theories. My favorite, though, is that it's some suggest that it's kind of a southernized version of the words spirit and image. And you can kind of hear how that, that might have developed with, you know, someone with a very strong southern drawl saying spirit and image, right? Spit and image. So to be, perhaps, to be a spitting image of someone means something more than just simply looking like them, right? In some way, you encapsulate their spirit. And while I have no clue if that's actually where this came from or not, it, it does help remind us that family resemblances are more than just skin deep. In fact, some of the more significant ones are far more than skin deep. It's one of the most interesting things, I think, about watching children grow up is, is to see as their personalities develop, you know, what, what personality traits they pick up from their parents, for better or worse sometimes, right? And then, of course, there's those traits that you wish they would pick up from you, but then they just never quite seem to, right? And it's it's little things, you know, little things from maybe how they pronounce a certain word or some expression that they say a lot or uh, some some random habit that they might pick up from their mom or their dad, whatever it might be. Now, I don't necessarily, I don't think, maybe my family would correct me on this, but I don't think I necessarily look a ton like either my mom or my dad. I think I probably favor my dad a bit more, <clears throat> but as I've gotten older, I realize that how much I am like my dad in almost every other way, um, and to the point that it actually, my sister makes fun of me a lot. She gives me grief about it. I think it drives her a little bit crazy, so we'll talk on the phone about things. She'll tell me kind of what's going on, 
you know, and I'll respond however I respond. Say, oh, I swear, it's like I'm talking to dad again. You know, <laughs> dad just said the exact same thing to me five minutes ago. And that's how deep these family resemblances are sometimes, to the point that sometimes even for a split second, you forget which person you're even talking to. That's, it's, it's almost as if that other person is there in the room with you. Maybe even someone that, that has gone on, that is no longer with us, and, but their son or someone or daughter or brother in some way encapsulates their spirit and, and it's as if they're there with you again. So Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father and we will be satisfied. To which Jesus responds, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now this isn't exactly the same thing as saying that he's the spitting image of God, but it's pretty darn close, right? At the beginning of John's Gospel, the narrator puts it like this. He says, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. In other words, we know what God is like because we know what Jesus is like. Jesus reveals to us the full character and nature of who God is. The author of Colossians puts it somewhat similarly. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the spirit and image in a certain sense. The author of Hebrews, again, very similar. He is the reflection of God's glory the exact imprint of God's very being. Now, our understanding of how Jesus was both fully God and fully human all at the same time is is one of the more complex and confusing questions in all of Christian theology. It's one of those questions that took a few centuries uh, and a dozen or so heresies to, to iron out some of the finer points. There were plenty of arguments about how we understand the Incarnation. And there are still arguments. It's still very much a live debate. And while, you know, as much as I love to argue theology, which I do, uh, the more important question, I think, or the more important point to bear in mind is that when we talk about these different, you know, how do we understand the Incarnation, Jesus being both God and human, is there a ratio? How, how do we want, want to understand that? The most important thing to keep in mind, I think, is that Jesus never really fully spoke to this issue. He, he unfortunately never went into great detail about how the incarnation worked and, and gave us the proper formula to understand and articulate it. But this statement that we get here in John's Gospel is about as close as, as he ever comes. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. God the Son in the form of Jesus reveals to us the full picture of the triune God and the self-giving, sacrificial life of the Son who was close to the Father's heart. We see what the Father's heart is like because Jesus bears this family resemblance of God, God the Father, and we are able to see God through him because, as he says elsewhere in John's Gospel, I and the Father are one. Now, interestingly, just, just as Jesus tells us that he looks like the Father, that if we look at him, we will see the Father, we also read a text today 
where we see Stephen looking an awful lot like Jesus. Stephen has just enraged this hostile crowd uh, to the point of, I mean, they're ready, they're ready to kill him. They're ready to stone him because of all the things that he has said in their presence, things that they thought were blasphemous. And just like Jesus, he is taken out of the city to be executed. Just like Jesus, as he is being executed, he prays for God to receive his spirit. And just like Jesus, he prays for the forgiveness of his attackers. Stephen's a really interesting character. We don't know a whole lot about him. He, he kind of shows up in Acts 6 out of, out of the blue, and then by the end of Acts chapter 7, he's, he's dead. He's gone. He's not one of the original 12, but is regarded by the community there in Jerusalem as one who is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. That's how they describe him. What a great description, right? Wouldn't it be great uh, to be described that way? But he doesn't appear to have had any personal contact with Jesus or, or to have known Jesus personally. Um, but when we look at him, and particularly this story of him, even though he never physically met Jesus, we see that he bears a striking family resemblance with Jesus. In a number of ways, Jesus is a, I'm sorry, Stephen is a spitting image of Jesus in this moment, bearing his image in very powerful ways before this crowd that would eventually kill him. And I think this is essentially what it means to live a life of discipleship, to proudly bear the image of our God and our Savior. We're told very, very early on in the scriptures that all human beings are made in the image of God and that we all bear God's image. It's not something that we have to earn. It's not something that, uh, it's not a reward for faithful living. It's who we are. It's part of who we are as human beings. But the unfortunate reality is that it's also a terribly easy thing for us to resist. And Resisting this image is what we would usually probably call sin, something along those lines. And so what we see in the life and the death of of Stephen, as well as many other apostles in the New Testament and many countless others throughout our history, is that when our lives bear witness to the Son, we too can reveal the true nature of our loving God and Father. We can bear that family resemblance in profound and powerful ways. But unfortunately, we Christians do have a bit of an image problem. There was a a survey that was done a few years ago, in 2007, by um, the Barna Group. And what they were hoping to do was gauge the impression um, that 16 to 29-year-olds have of Christianity. Now, some who, who were polled were Christians themselves. Some weren't. It was just kind of a random sampling of a bunch of folks within that age bracket. And overwhelmingly, the results of that poll were that people of that generation, uh, millennials, you might hear them called, uh, they believe, this is one of the phrases that kept continually coming up, they believe that Christians, no, or that Christianity no longer looks like Jesus. It doesn't, when they see Christians and Christianity in the public sphere, they don't see Jesus. The top three answers that they gave were, overwhelmingly negative, things like hypocritical, judgmental, 
anti this, anti that, anti that. What the researchers found was that the prevailing impression of Christians of this particular, uh, prevailing impression of Christians from this particular generation was that we define ourselves more by the things we're against than the things that we're for. That the Christian gospel, in their minds, had become so co-opted by different things like political parties and other interests that it was impossible even to tell them apart anymore. That Christians on both sides had, had baptized their preferred political parties or ideologies or agendas to the point that those things can, can do no wrong, that they take precedence even over the gospel itself. Over and over and over again, the young people surveyed expressed their deep admiration for who they thought and knew Jesus to be, while lamenting that the Christians they knew and saw and heard from were so unlike this Jesus. It reminds me of this, this quote that's usually attributed to Gandhi, although he probably didn't say it, was, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, even though he probably didn't say that, it, it, it points us, I think, to this painful reality of the difficulty that we have living into that image, fully uh, embodying the image of the God who, whom we bear, the, and the unfortunate consequences that do come along with it. In many ways, we must admit that we have failed to properly bear God's image to the world around us, and especially to younger generations, so that they, many of them don't see that family resemblance anymore. So we have to ask ourselves the question, I think. What do we learn about God by looking at the life and ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus? What does the fact that Jesus loved eating with tax collectors and sinners and spending time with prostitutes tell us about who God is? Or what about the fact that Jesus was far more critical of the religious people of his day than those that they viewed as sinners. That he warned against uh, speaking to the specks in other people's eyes while ignoring the logs that we have in our own. And that his death, according to the world around him, was largely considered to be uh, a mark of his failure as a messiah, as a revolutionary. To the Roman Empire, he was nothing more than another failed messiah. They, they never thought anything differently of this man, Jesus whom they crucified, another wannabe revolutionary who died the same death as countless others before him and countless others after him. This is how God chose to reveal himself to us. And this is how we're called to live. This is the image that we bear. And it's, it's difficult to, to live into that. There's no denying that. It's, it's definitely a tall order. And the first disciples, I think, we can see, felt the same way. As Jesus is telling them that he's about to go away, he's about to prepare a place for them, he tells them, you know the place where I'm going. And then, of course, our old pal Thomas chimes in and says, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way. Walk like me. Talk like me. Do what I do. 
live the way I live. Love the way that I love. It's no accident that the earliest Christians, after Christ was gone, after he had uh, rose and ascended, they referred to themselves as followers of the way. Long before they called themselves Christians, they called themselves followers of the way. The way, for them, described how they lived their lives in this world, seeking to reflect that image of God in their daily lives and all that they did. These were people who were filled with the Holy Spirit and were able to accomplish incredible things. But these were also people who, like us, failed miserably at times, needed needed to constantly be lifted back up, constantly be reminded whose image it was they bear, who their father was, whose, whose name they carried on. And the good news is that, like them, we are not called to do this by ourselves. Like the first disciples, we too have been filled with the Spirit. That same Spirit that was within Stephen, as he somehow mustered the courage to face his attackers and to pray for their forgiveness, is the same Spirit that is within us. And because we have that Spirit, that Holy Spirit, that is a gift from our Father, because we bear that family resemblance, we are also able to bear God's image in this world. There is hope for this world only because the God who chose to dwell in us is continuing to reveal himself to us and is somehow using us to share the good news, the good news of the gospel that is eternal life, that is salvation, that is redemption. So, let us bear that image responsibly. Let us be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that when people look at us, they won't see us. They'll see our Savior. They'll see our Father. They'll see the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Amen.